Welcome to Radio Film School Shortens. These are mini documentary episodes about all things cinema to hold you over until the next episode of the main series, A Filmmaker's Journey. If you want to know the origin of the term shortens, check the website. Enjoy. It all started with a conversation I had with Seattle Film Institute Executive Director David Shulman. You were talking about how those first filmmakers, that first generation of filmmakers, were the inventors and the tinkerers, and they were using the changing of the technology of the day to create their work. That's kind of what's happening today, in a sense, where you have these new technologies that are coming out that are changing the landscape of filmmaking, and how today's filmmakers are experimenting with that landscape and with that technology in order to tell stories you're like transmedia storytelling where you're doing some of the stuff on online and right some yeah. of it in six second shorts on vine or on yeah. instagram and you have like like just take vine and instagram this whole new genre of filmmaking where you're you're telling a story in six seconds to be seen on someone's iphone yeah you know what i'm saying yeah yeah, no, no, it's really and okay. Oh, th- th- okay I, I don't know whether I want to laugh or cry. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you talk about becoming full circle. So, you know, we all have our personal journeys, right? I mean, things. You know, why do we want to be filmmakers? Why do we want to do whatever we do? And you know, I love being in the movie theater, the big screen, right? I mean, I mean, to me, that has such wonderful resonance. Well, when filmmaking started out, you know, with the kinetic scope and everything, you know, you had the little viewer. That, I mean, I've everybody's seen pictures, you know, where you just yeah, look oh, through right, the little right. viewer. So basically, Edison first thing was a direct view, right? It was just blowing up a 35 millimeter film frame, right? Yeah. Guess what that, I mean, the size of the viewer that the audience is looking through, basically we're talking, you know, 18, you know, 1890s, early 1900s. Uh, get, I mean, just guess what the size of the frame that the audience was looking at back then. I guess. What, what, guess what it matches. Almost uh, exactly. Uh, a smartphone? Yes. David is one of these old souls who's passionate about film history. You can hear it in his voice. This concept of coming full circle thoroughly intrigued me, and I wanted to explore this idea, this history, a little more in depth, but I wanted to do it justice. And that's where Facebook comes in. And now, I'm not talking about Facebook video. One of the things I find annoying about Facebook are all the different games and groups I get invited to join or play every day. No, I don't want to play your SimCity Apocalypse game. Sorry, I have no interest in your multi-level marketing program to sell vitamin to Vegemin either. But hey, thanks for thinking of me. I've turned off my notifications so that these no longer get sent to my email. But when I'm on Facebook.com, if I'm logged in, they still show up in my notifications menu. Because I find these invites annoying, I never look at them. My typical MO is to click on the menu quickly so that I no longer see the new notifications badge. But last fall, when I went to erase that badge, I saw an invite to check out a new podcast. Now, there are two reasons I took notice. First, and this may come as no surprise to you, I love finding new podcasts. So the announcement of a new one piqued my interest. But secondly, this particular invite was from a talented young filmmaker I knew from my days living in Atlanta. He was part of my mentorship program. The podcast he was referring to was by his frequent filmmaking and writing partner, Zach Lovelace. The name of the podcast was Circa. It was a show about history, and it was recorded and edited in that storytelling method of which I'm a huge fan. 
It was kind of like 99% invisible, but about historic events. Here's how Zach describes it on the website. A podcast about the stories lost in time and how they can help us better understand ourselves today. This was one of those pleasant surprises. I loved everything about Zach's show. The tonal quality of his voice, the music he chose, the storytelling and the pace. As soon as I heard it, I knew I'd want to collaborate. And what perfect topic on which to collaborate with a podcast about historic events than the history of cinema. So today, I'm proud to share with you the first ever Radio Film School collaboration. It's a brief look at the history of cinema from Thomas Edison and the Lumiere Brothers to Quentin Tarantino's Ultra Panavision. Oh, in fact, speaking of Tarantino, I am getting close to finishing the edit of that episode. Lots of great discussions there. I promise it'll be worth the wait. But without further ado, here is Zach Lovelace of Circa. Oh, and be sure to stay tuned past the credits. As usual, I have another hilarious segment to share with you. See you on the other side. Can you remember the first movie you ever saw in the theater? Think about it for a second. Going to the movies is a formative thing for children. Where else do adults sit in communal darkness and silence just watching? Odds are you were young, and the first film you saw is forgotten. But one thing is certain. For the rough hundred years that movies have been around, the experience has changed dramatically. Every generation has had a different idea of what cinema is like. Each has their own cultural view of the movies. First we had no sound, then we had sound. Black and white, then color. Film, now digital. Filmmaking is the ultimate marriage between all the arts. And I believe it is the most powerful because of that. It is an art in which all other art forms are absorbed. But where did it all start? Enter Thomas Edison, America's resident inventor and godfather of the modern technological world. Edison's skills as an inventor were only trumped by his shrewdness as a businessman. The corporate nature of his mind made him a collector of sorts assembling patents in areas of telephony, electricity, and film. It's here we see Edison's invention of the kinetograph. This is an early electric stationary film camera that recorded some of the world's first movies at Edison's own Black Mariah studio. He was inspired by the pioneer in photography and motion capture, Edward Muybridge, and his images of a horse galloping and its projector, the Zopraxiscope, as it was called. It's this spinning wheel thing that we've all seen, kind of works like a flip book. Edison got his men working on this new technology and soon produced minute-long films of people kissing, sneezing, dancing, and even boxing that could be seen at novelty parlors. To show these films, Edison invented his own form of projection, the kinetoscope. The kinetoscope essentially was a large podium that one would stare down into through a 4x3 gap and crank. This cranking would rotate the film 
over a bulb and project the image, all at the cost of a dime. In the end, Edison was happy with this particular outcome and saw little need to innovate the process. He saw film more as a novelty than a true avenue of technology. It would take two French brothers and their obsession with film to bring us the cinema we know today. The Lumiere brothers worked hard to improve upon Edison's design. Their camera, called the Cinematograph, had a projector attached to it weighing only 16 pounds, making it mobile. For the first time, the camera could truly move, which, in and of itself, is a revolution. With a moving camera, the world of filmmaking was born. Not only could we see many different locations, we could experience drama on screen. This was the beginning of what Martin Scorsese calls visual literacy, or the language of filmmaking as we understand it today. The Lumiere's invention catapulted them to fame among the elite and the poor. They traveled to Asia, showcasing short films, about 50 seconds in length, to anyone who would pay to see. In one night, they famously declined a $10,000, $20,000, and $50,000 bid to purchase their invention. One of those men they shot down was George Méliès. Méliès was a showman, a magician with an interest in the art of cinema. After being shot down, he pursued a knockoff of the Lumiere's invention and soon began tinkering via trial and error. Once familiar, Méliès began making short films that were similar to his live act, containing magic tricks and illusions, providing more dramatic content than the Lumiere's shots of people walking or working. And slowly, the magician worked his magic. Audiences were enchanted with his foray into special effects and the stories he would tell. From Joan of Arc to his famous work, A Trip to the Moon, which you can find on Netflix, by the way, Méliès gave audiences something they had never seen before. Spectacle. Back in America, Edison's company was inspired by Méliès' work. They cranked out their own versions of his stories, and soon, a race was underway, and the silent era had begun. Advancements continued for decades under the vision of leaders such as Cecil B. DeMille, D.W. Griffith, and the newcomers like Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and Fritz Lang. Genre films like The Great Train Robbery, Metropolis, and The Phantom of the Opera burst forth, bringing audiences hungry for more. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. It was in 1919 that another bombshell landed for film. It was Lee DeForest's invention of the married print, or a commercially viable format that allowed sound in movies. Before this, films relied on in-house orchestrations for any musical accompaniment. And soon, silent films went the way of the dodo. All anyone wanted to see were the movies with sound. This is where filmmaking takes off again. Stories could be told in new and complex ways, adding value to actors and the lines they gave. Screenwriting as we know it was born, the backbone of any production today. But as Hollywood profited from their new storytelling capabilities, a small rival came onto the scene. Television.
For years, movies prided themselves as being the most prestigious way to see a film. In color, with clarity and scope. It could look down on the technology of television, with its black and white images of fuzzy resolution. And sure, TV was convenient, but audiences weren't wowed by what they saw. But by the early 1950s, film audiences had shrunk from an average 90 million to 46 million. Hollywood was sweating as television continued to draw away its profits by showing movies during programs like The Late Show and Saturday Night at the Movies. Desperate, theaters searched for ways to innovate, to enchant once more. So studios latched on to what they thought were the reasons people came to the theater, to see things in color and magnitude. They poured their resources into different lenses and formats, pushing aside the old 4x3 format, the format that TV had adopted, for the 16 by 9 aspect ratio, to give their movies the scope they deserved. This gave birth to formats such as Panavision, Cinemascope, Vistavision, Superscope, and Technoscope. These formats drew audiences back to the theaters successfully, relying on grandiose storytelling with epics like How the West Was Won, and The Man Who Knew Too Much, and The Robe. Thanks to the array of formats to see a film in, theaters staved off its smaller rival, the television, for years, thinking the battle was won. But in that time, tiny TV has come a long way. By the 60s and 70s, most televisions were in color, projecting in the same old 4x3 ratio that it always had. More programming for movies made their way onto television, and soon you could find a movie on at all times of the day. But throughout this time, Television was notorious in Hollywood for underrepresenting the art captured on film. We're all familiar with that message on our DVDs, or if you still own a VCR, that message that says, this has now been formatted to fit this screen. This is the manufacturer copying to what's known as pan and scan. This term comes from the method of which executives would have widescreen and other formatted films cut down to size to fit on the television screen. Plenty of Hollywood directors like Sidney Pollack and Martin Scorsese are outspoken on the topic. And actually, here's a little bit of a documentary about the subject. Pan and scan is when they try to make a widescreen film, a rectangle, fit into a square format on a television screen. And that is, in a sense, technically redirecting the movie. Take a film like Ben-Hur, the William Wyler film, the chariot sequence is one of the greatest action sequences ever done in movies. Ben-Hur is driving four horses. Very often you'll find that there'll only be two in the frame. You lose the effect of all the stunt work in that sequence, which is one of the, the great climactic sequences in all of cinema, reduced to a confused blur. I get the heebie-jeebies thinking about Ben-Hur panned and scanned. It isn't Ben-Hur. It's, it becomes a whole movie. Images collectively add up to something. They add up to something when one frame contains many elements. Your eye sees all of them, some of them peripherally and some of them as a point of focus. And collectively, it creates a mood. Every shot in a movie is thoughtfully composed. And the composition of that shot is approached the same way that a painter approaches the composition of a, of a painting. And when a technician takes a completed movie and pans and scans, he's moving the camera defensively rather than artistically and violating all the creativity that went into composing that shot. 
The history of film technology is the history of how we tell stories. Big stories told in little ways are little stories told in big ways. Each have their impact. We started with the 4 by 3 aspect ratio and the kinetoscope and early theaters, and soon television adopted the same. The race to keep audiences' attention has shifted many times, and we finally have arrived with screens that provide 16 by 9 ratio, the most common ratio for feature films, that fit in our hands. Now I can watch the most epic films from the comfort of my own bathroom, or on a plane, or walking down the street. You can watch a movie anywhere. But is this really how cinema should be viewed? Is it possible that watching Lord of the Rings in the palm of my hand, despite being in the correct aspect ratio, is just as bad as panning and scanning? And it's no secret. Television is entering a golden age with critically acclaimed shows and streaming services like Netflix or Hulu that generate their own dramatic content. Films have to fight to keep their audience's attention once more. Movie theaters are now lagging behind, playing catch-up, trying to find ways to re-enchant. This battle is raging behind the scenes still to this day, with films like Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight being shot in a format called Ultra Panavision, the widest format in existence. But just like before, Movies in their theaters are going to have to reinvent themselves to continue to bring us in. Will the screens get bigger? Will they get wider? Is 3D the next VistaVision or CinemaScope? Or is this the end of movies as we know them? Is it a battle they can even win? Behind it all, it's us, the moviegoer, that write this story. We choose the outcome. It all boils down to which experiences we want to have. And with that comment, we now come full circle within this episode as we return to the conversation that started it all. So basically in the 1890s, people are looking through you know, looking through this viewer, seeing something that's basically the size of their smartphone, then all this energy gets things so we, we can blow it up, big, have an experience on a big screen, watch it big, and now 115 years of film history have gone by, and what price victory? What have we gotten back to? We've gotten back to the size of the small frame, watching on your smartphone, which is the same place where Edison started out. Is this good or bad? I don't know, but you know, sometimes it just makes me depressed. <laughs> you know, people are now watching everything on, a, on, a, on the same size screen that they were in 1890 and we put all this energy into it and and now we're proud of it so what say you my fellow filmmaking friends what experiences do you want to have this episode was co-produced in collaboration with zach lovelace of the circa podcast i hope you enjoyed it hopefully we'll get zach to come back again to recount some other aspect of cinematic history in the meantime be sure to check out his show and his other episodes at circapodcast.tumblr.com. I even have an episode recommendation for you. 
With the recent record-breaking $17.5 million purchase of Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation at Sundance this past January, you may want to check out the December 16th episode of Circa. It's about the creation of the middle class, and Zack uses that historic slave rebellion of Nat Turner, the rebellion about which Nate Parker's film is based, as the history lesson. Here's a short excerpt. A slave by the name of Nat Turner stands in a field as the February winds whip around him. His eyes are fixed to the sun, which steadily grows blacker and blacker in the shadow of the moon, until everything is gray. Nearby, fellow slaves shout praises to God under the influence of the eclipse. A few minutes later, the warm light returns, and Turner drops his eyes back to earth, back to the white overseers that surround him. He clutches the axe in his hand tightly. He knows his moment is near. He's just had a sign from God. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. If you love the storytelling podcast style, and you have a taste for brief but bright glimpses of history, you'll love Circa. Check our show notes at daredreamer.fm slash Circa for links to hear that full Nat Turner episode. Remember to stay tuned after the credits for a funny bonus segment. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. Chris Huslidge is our co-producer. We're supported in part by Song Freedom. Go to songfreedom.com radio and use the offer code radio to unlock a standard GOAT-level license worth $30. We're also supported by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the storytelling process they use that helped them go from shooting weddings to shooting the Super Bowl to winning five Emmys. They have a brand new course on their site called Conducting Remarkable Interviews, and it's based on years of experience in the field and research of psychology, sociology, and neurology. Go to learnstory.org to learn more. And if you sign up for one of their regular tracks, use the offer code RADIO and you'll save $47 off lifetime access. If you haven't already done so, would you mind hopping over to iTunes, leaving us a rating and review? We really want to hear from those of you who love the show. Your comments and subscriptions help us immensely. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Also consider leaving us a voicemail message if you like what you hear. Just click on the send voicemail link at the bottom of any page on our website. You can also email us at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm. That's all for now. Until next week, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Au revoir. Last week on the show, we had a special best of series, wherein I shared some of my favorite personal and guest stories from our first six months. One of those stories was spoken word phenom Marshall Davis Jones, telling the story of the time his voice was in a sort of transitional period as he was training it to have that deep, rich quality he's currently known for. One of the stories involved an interaction he had at a nail salon. Like I used to sing in nail salons uh, to women to, to sell the CD I'd made a long time ago. But one day I got went into the to the nail salon. I'm talking to the lady 
And I'm like, you know, so I have my CD, you know, I'm like, <laughs> and, and she's like, uh, why are you talking like that? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, this is my natural voice. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> she was like uh, no, it's not. Like, I, like, and I was like, and I was like, I tried to pull the like, I'm learning this from acting school. She's like, <laughs> she's like, <laughs> and she's basically calling me on my shit. Cause she's like, so first of all, I've gone to acting school and I've done voice work and that's not your natural voice. Well, just a few days ago, I was recording a Skype session with show regulars and fan favorites, JD and Yolanda Cochran. We were discussing their feedback on my short film mix in America. On the podcast, we've been following my progress on that film, and their feedback is chock full of great insight. I can't wait to share it on the show. But as usual, we had our usual small talk and chit-chat before the main discussion. They had just finished listening to the Best Of episodes, and we were commenting about how funny Marshall's stories were. What happened next was a classic J.D., Yolanda, and Ron interaction. Enjoy. I I listened to the two... uh... Best of episodes? Best of episodes are good, man. Yeah, I really, I really like some of the guests on there. Yeah, I think I still I'm the com- I can tell I'm the comic relief, but the other <laughs> folks uh, got some really good insights on us. You, you pick some good stories. What did you think of that uh, story Marshall Davis Jones talking about when he met with John Leguizamo? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I had me rolling. I was doing a dish. I mean, I, I laughed the first time I heard it. It was a great, a great episode. I, that was when I heard it again, he's like, oh, hello, Mr. Leguizamo. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but the funniest part was when he's in the uh, in the barbershop. Oh, right, right, right. Because <laughs> uh, the hair salon, because sisters right. would keep it real. It's like, oh, uh, like, you know what? what? Are you talking that, like that? What's wrong with your voice? That is. So oh, what are you talking? What are you speaking of? This is my actual speaking voice. It's so hilarious. you thought, so you got the impression he was in a black hair salon. I did. That's funny. I never, that never occurred to me. You thought he was like in a white? Come on, Come Ron. on, Ron. Oh, wow, dude. Wow. Wow. If he was in a white salon, it would have the it's conversation. Not even a question. Right. The conversation would have been much different. It's like, wow, that's an interesting young black fellow. He's uh he has an interesting voice. I couldn't quite understand why yeah. he was speaking so strangely. He must be from England. There's yeah, but no, this I, I certainly wouldn't have deigned to say something to him about it. Well, this is like, nigga, please. You know that is not your real voice. Quit front. <laughs> I went to acting class too, Why and that's not your you real voice. Like right. Why are you talking like that? First of all, I'm going to tell you that's not your real speaking voice because I too went to acting school, and I know that's not your real voice. And I took voice classes. <laughs> all right, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna ask him and see. <laughs> I will. I will bet you. Oh, you want you want to add this to the Miata? No, 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 no. You're probably right. right. You're probably Mm -hmm. right. Um, For no other reason that. Jeez, I didn't even realize that. Now this is harking back to your uh, your Wizard of Oz story, where where the people didn't know it was in color. It's like (laughs) now thinking back on it, it probably should have occurred to me because yes, it it would. It'd have to be a black salon if he was because he mentioned how he was about going in there singing. (laughs) Right, singing to white women. Oh my God. Right. He was going to sing right. to sell his CD. Right. 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 Come on. What, what, what salon? That, it could have been a white salon, but I want to know what type of CD he's selling. He'd be up the top. When that clock strikes, half past six, babe. That's a good sign. Yeah. I'm going to have to email him and ask knife. him. I'm like, all right. That's funny. 
That's a good point. Oh, wow. What we learned. Okay. So I emailed Marshall just to confirm to see who was right and who was wrong. And I have to give this one to JD and yo. It was indeed a black nail salon. And really, in retrospect, I can't believe that it never occurred to me. Oh, well. We live and we learn. <laughs>